Hey, good morning. How's everybody? Good. Good to see you. Welcome to the Parkway Church. Whether you are joining us in the sanctuary, the chapel, the fellowship hall, or online, it is good to see you. My name is Zach, one of the pastors here. Hope that you are doing great. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it right to the middle because we're beginning a new series today on the book of Psalms, and in particular, we're going to be in Psalm 1. By the way, when you refer to the book as a whole, it's Psalms, or if there are several of them, but when you're turning to an individual one, you just say Psalm. So it's Psalm 23 or Psalm 150, not Psalms 23, but we will be in Psalm 1 of the Psalms today. While you're turning there, I want to tell you a little story. So back before uh, coronavirus and all this kind of stuff, when community groups were meeting, what we do in our community group for childcare, because childcare is an issue in every group, what we do for childcare is we rotate out different people in the group to watch the kids. So we'll pick two guys, they'll watch the kids, or two girls, and they'll watch the kids. We always have two for safety reasons. And one day, Jared Lawson, our pastoral resident, and I drew the short stick. So we, just, we, we were going to be the ones to watch what felt like 500 kids, but probably was about 15 or so kids. There were just a ton of kids, and we're trying to watch them, and we're at this house that has a lot of dangerous things. So upstairs, there are literally like toy crossbows and sharpened sticks and this kind of stuff. And so we decide that we're going to watch these kids outside on this little playground area. Now, we're doing the best we can, one, to keep them safe, and also try to interact with them, right? So if my kid comes up and says, Daddy, I'm thirsty, I'll be like, deal with it. But I can't say that to someone else's kid. That's weird. So we're trying to connect with these kids. Dads don't do as good of a job with this as moms do. And so Jared is trying to encourage this little girl who's going down the slide. Now, I'm not going to give you her real name. Let's just call her Susie. And so she's about to go down the slide, and she's wearing this shirt that is kind of flowing, where if she lifts up her arms, there's kind of this flowing material. And so Jared, trying to connect, says to this to her as she's going down the slide. Oh, Susie, you look so beautiful when you go down the slide. You, you look like a bird. I don't know how to talk to kids. That's what he did. Just looks at me. I don't think I know how to talk to kids. And I'm like, just stop whatever you're doing and let her go down the slide. Well, the book of Psalms is kind of the same way. It's this book that you've been doing your devotional times in for the last 20 years, but maybe don't really know how to read it. So yes, it's an emotional book. Yes, it's poetry, but there's a lot of deep theology in the Psalms. And so today we're going to be kicking off a series that will last us till about the end of uh, this year in the Psalms. There's about 28-ish or so Psalms that we're going to be going through. And today we're going to start in Psalm 1. But before we do, what I want to do is kind of introduce the book as a whole. And then we'll pray and get into our particular Psalm today. So let me give you some information. First of all, what are the Psalms? We've got a definition for you. Psalms is a collection of 150 religious poems, songs, and prayers that are sacred in both Judaism and Christianity. Let me read that again. Psalms is a collection of 150 religious poems, songs, and prayers that are sacred in both Judaism and in Christianity. Why are they called Psalms? This comes from the Greek title of this book, which is Psalmoi, which means songs. The Hebrew title is actually different. It's Tehillim. Tehillim in Hebrew means praises. Sometimes you'll hear the Psalms called the Psalter, especially in Catholic and Anglican liturgical tradition with lectionary readings and things like that. It'll be called the Psalter, but regardless of what you call it, we're all dealing with the same book. Now, within the Psalms, some of the Psalms have a particular title. Now, I'm not talking about the title that your English translators put in there. They just put those in there to help you. That's not part of God's word. That's just part of your translation. But when it comes to the actual titles in Hebrew, most conservative Christians consider that to be part of the biblical text. And so we will treat that throughout this series as inspired by God as well. Now, many, but not all of the songs are ascribed to whom? Who is it? 
David, yes, I heard a weird, I was like, Todd, no, David. Uh, David wrote most of the Psalms. He didn't write the majority of Psalms, but he is the author that wrote the most of them. David is an interesting figure because he is both sensitive and tough. He's both naughty and nice. On the one hand, he plays the harp and talks about his feelings and writes poetry. But on the other hand, he kills Goliath and goes to war, okay? And by the way, after he kills Goliath, this is the part we always leave out for our children, he cuts off Goliath's head and I guess just like medusas him or something, okay? So he's both tough and he's both a warrior, but he's also someone who's gonna express his feelings, he's going to weep, he's going to play the harp, he's got kind of both things going on. He wrote about 73 of the Psalms, so not even half technically. 73 of them are ascribed to King David. 11 Psalms are ascribed to the sons of Korah. 12 Psalms to a guy named Asaph. Possibly two Psalms uh, to Solomon. There's some debate on whether they're about him or from him. One Psalm to Moses. One Psalm to a guy named Heman. And one Psalm to, uh, uh, is ascribed to a guy named Ethan which I think is funny to me. Etan in Hebrew is a Hebrew name, but we have the name Ethan in English, so it's like, and then this psalm was written by Keith, and it just kind of sounds like an overly American name, but that's who uh, wrote the psalms, and many of the psalms are not, uh, whoever wrote them is not given, okay? A lot of psalms are anonymous. We don't know who wrote those. Now, Hebrew poetry is not the same as English poetry. What do we think of when we think of as English poetry? What is the primary literary feature we think of when we think of English poetry? We think of rhyme, right? Violet, roses are red, violets are blue, some poems rhyme and some don't. We do that kind of rhyming scheme when we think of English poetry. That's not the primary thing you need to be looking for in Hebrew poetry. In Hebrew poetry, the primary feature is something called parallelism. Parallelism, what is parallelism? It's where you basically say the same thing with several different sentences. So if I were to say something like this to my wife, uh, Katie, you are so beautiful, you are most lovely among women. I've really just said the same thing in two different ways. And sometimes the parallelism can be antithetical. I can say the righteous will prosper and the wicked will perish. I'm still talking about the same topic, judgment, and I'm just referring to it from different angles. Notice that as we get into the Psalms because that will be a huge feature of these. When was the Psalms compiled, the book of Psalms compiled? So here's something you need to know. The authors of the individual Psalms are different than whoever the composer or the editor or the redactor is that's collecting them all together, okay? That's different than the person that's putting them all together. We don't get a final form of the Psalms until after the Babylonian exile. It's about 586 BC. And with Psalms 90 through 150, we don't get them compiled until about the time of Christ, till about the first century, okay? So what that means is throughout Israel's history, they have some of these songs that they're probably singing but you don't actually get the full book of Psalms like we have it today, compiled and all this kind of stuff till about the first century. Now, you might also not know this, that the book of Psalms is divided actually into five different books. So the Bible is not one book, it's 66 books. And then you take the book of Psalms and it is divided into five books. We know this because in Hebrew, how these different sections end very clearly mark a transition. Those uh, books are, up as they're up on the screen, book one is Psalms 1 through 41, book two, 42 through 72, book three, 73 through 89, book four, 90 through 106, and book five, 107 through 150. Now, let me ask this question. Why is the book of Psalms divided into five books? Why not four? Why not six? Here's why. Because who's ever compiling this, the Jewish 
editor who's ever compiling these psalms is trying to make the psalms look like the Torah. Remember that in Jewish thinking, you have the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those are the big five. That is God's law. And so what the Psalms are, the Psalms are the praises for God's people who follow God's law. What they're trying to do is they're trying to tie those two ideas together. Though the Jews had the Torah, the law, the prophets, the Nevi'im, and the writings, the Kethubim, it was the Torah that was recognized by all Jews. Even the Sadducees that denied other parts of Scripture recognized the Torah. So what's happening here is that the Psalms are broken up just like God's law is broken up. That's the idea of why there is five. Now, I said that book one begins with Psalm one. Technically, it begins with Psalm three. Psalms one and two don't really belong to book one. Psalms one and two are more of an introduction to the book of Psalms. That's why we're doing Psalm one first. Psalm one and Psalm two are an introduction to the entire book of Psalms. Psalm one is basically God's word is important. Psalm two is honor the messianic king, if you want a summary of those two Psalms. And so today we're gonna be kicking off with the most appropriate Psalm to kick off with, which is gonna be Psalm one. Is your mind full already? Because we got a lot more to learn. Let's pray and then we will get into Psalm one. Almighty God, we confess that we need you. We confess that we're broken, that we're not good enough, we're not moral enough, we're not smart enough. We confess in a season of pandemic how much we need you that humans cannot solve our own problems. The most intelligent men in the world right now are just befuddled because of a tiny bug. We confess that you, though, know all things, that you are great. We are weak, we need mercy, we need help. Would you open our eyes that we might see wonderful things in your word as we meditate upon it. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen. Let's look at verses one through two, here we go. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Verse two, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, the law of Yahweh, and on his law he meditates day and night. Let's look at that first phrase, blessed is the man. A few things to say about this. First of all, this also applies to women, okay? Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, the three languages in which the Bible is written, are all what are called patriarchal languages, What that means is that when it refers to man, a lot of times it's referring to humankind, okay? So this is just because it uses the word man, you'll see this throughout the Psalms. Blessed is the man or the wicked man or whatever. Know that this applies to women as well. You could just use the word one. Blessed is the one. Same way in the New Testament when it says brothers, it's the idea of brothers and sisters. This is how God wants language. In the beginning it talks about her that she shall be called woman because she was taken from man. Paul says that man was not made for woman but woman for man. And it's the same in Hebrew. She shall be called Isha, woman, for she was taken from Ish, husband or man. And so just know though where it says that, that refers to women as well, okay? So this refers to all people, what's going on here in this text. Now, what does it mean when it says blessed? What does it mean when it says blessed? That's one of those weird churchy words, but we're not really sure what it means. Be blessed, I'll do my best, right? I will do my best to be blessed, I'm trying to. What does blessed mean? So here's the best way to think about it, and if you've got a pen, you can write this over the word blessed, God's favor and joy. That's the idea of blessed, God's favor and joy. It's not that everything will go well, although sometimes that happens. It's not just that God will reward you after a difficult life, although that will happen as well. The idea of blessedness in this psalm is joy. 
It's the idea of being under God's favor, having the joy of God, having that peace that surpasses understanding. If you want to have joy, if you want to be in God's favor, this is the text that's going to tell you how to do that. It's kind of like if I said this, blessed is the man who has nothing to hide. What do I mean by that? What I mean is he's not burdened by all these lies and shame and all this kind of stuff. That's what I mean that he's blessed. It's similar to the Beatitudes in the, uh, the, in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What that means is those are the ones who are actually walking in joy. Those are the ones who are actually walking under God's favor. So here's what you need to see right out of the gate when it comes to the Psalms. And I think this is really, really important. The way that you obtain joy, the way that you obtain what you're looking for is not the way you think you obtain it, but rather it's gonna be by walking according to God's word. So let me explain what I mean by that. We as humans, no matter who you are, all want joy. We all want to be happy, period, no matter who you are. You cannot get rid of that. Every human is looking for joy. We're looking for happiness. Why do you get married? Because you think it will make you happy. Why do you get divorced? Because you think it will make you happier than your marriage. Why do you uh, take a certain job? Because you think it will make you happy. Even someone who does drugs, why do they do that? Because they think that will bring them more joy than they're currently experiencing. Even the person who commits suicide thinks that whatever is on the other side of that bullet is gonna be better than what they're going through now. You see, God has wired the human heart to find joy. God has wired the human heart to find happiness. Here's the problem though. We just go about it the wrong way. The problem's not that we wanna have joy. God wants us to have joy. The problem is, is that we pursue it in things that don't satisfy. I'll give you a few examples. There are a lot of things that I think are gonna be a great idea until I actually do them. Anybody else? Here's one of those things. It's summertime and my kids want some type of popsicle and so we have what are called freeze pops. You know what freeze pops are? They're these little sleeves of basically hummingbird food for children, it's just like pure sugar and you can buy like a thousand pack of them at Walmart for a a dollar. And it seems like a great idea because you put them in the freezer and you think, these are cheap popsicles, my kids are gonna love them. And so then the kids ask for a freeze pop and here's what you have to do. You have to peel one off and uh uh-oh, now it's, you can't open it. You have to use your teeth and break your teeth or you have to go get scissors which become sticky because you're cutting the tops off of the freeze pop. And then you give them to the kids and they whine because they're too frozen for them to squeeze and eat. And then the sides of those things are like razors. That's how the Joker got his scars. He says that in the Batman movie. He says, you wanna know how I got these scars? My dad gave me a freeze pop. Go look it up. It's a a director's cut kind of thing. It seems like a great idea until you try to do it and it falls short. Or here's another one, the Winter Olympics. I do not care at all about the the Winter Olympics. The Summer Olympics, those are the real ones. People are running and jumping and doing athletic things. But every year I think, you know what? I think I'll try to get into the Winter Olympics. So I turn it on, all the music's going and I'm like, America, and then I watch it. And it's cross-country skiing, which is watching somebody walk for three hours on skis, and then we get beat by weird nations like Sweden. That is a letdown. I think it will bring joy, and it doesn't. Or here's the last one I'll give you. A leather couch. (laughs) A leather couch to me is the greatest couch you can buy for five minutes. You sit down on it, and it's cool in the summertime, and you think, this is a good decision. And then you sit there five minutes, and you are dripping with sweat. If you fall asleep on a leather couch, 
you just wake up stuck to it. You wake up sweaty and you can't, it's just on your back. You're a couch person now. That's just who you are. And it seems like a great idea and it lets us down. Listen, here's what the Psalms are gonna say right out of the gate, especially Psalm 1. The way we find joy is counterintuitive. It's not all the ways we think we will find joy. We think we'll find joy in our marriage, our job, more money, being healthy, whatever it is. And right out of the gate, Psalm 1 is gonna say, no, no, I'm gonna tell you how you find joy. I'm gonna tell you what it actually looks like to live a blessed life. So what advice do you have for us, God and the Psalms? Let's take a look. Blessed is the man, he's gonna give us a negative and a positive, what not to do and what to do. Let me give you both. First, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Here you have parallelism. Remember when we just talked about that? Where you say the same thing using different words? Here we have a triple parallelism. We have this idea of wicked sinners and scoffers, and then we have this idea of walking, standing, and sitting. Really, these three phrases mean the same thing. What is a scoffer? What is a with the wicked? What are the sinners? They're the same thing. But there does seem to be a little bit of a progression in this psalm. First, you're walking around, just kind of entertaining the ideas of the world. And then you're standing there, listening to the ideas of the world a little bit more intently. And by the end of it, you've sat down in the assembly of the wicked. You've fully embraced evil and unbiblical thinking. But here we have this parallelism. And notice that it's the opposite of what God's people are told to do in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 7. Listen for the same kind of language of standing and sitting and such. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. There's a contrast here. You can either listen to the Bible throughout your life or you can listen to the ideas of the wicked throughout your life, but you have to pick one. Okay, now let me get on my soapbox and yell. I'm not really gonna yell, but I might get loud. I have heard a lot of pastors misinterpret this text. Here's how a lot of pastors interpret this text. Blessed is the man who stays away from sinners. You've ever heard that? You ever heard a pastor say, you better not hang out with lost people, you better not be around scoffers, you better not be around sinners because Psalm 1 says that you have to avoid being around sinners. That is not at all what this Psalm is talking about. Do you know how I know? Because Jesus hangs out with sinners all the time. If you're not hanging out with sinners so much that people are accusing you of sin, you're not being like Jesus. 1 Corinthians deals with this as well. 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 11, Paul says this. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. See, Zach, we need to stay away from those who practice homosexuality. We need to stay away from those who are transgender. We need to stay away from sexually immoral people. Paul continues, not at all, meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual morality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So here's what the Bible's gonna tell us. We don't withdraw from lost people or else they're not gonna get saved. We should be around lost people, not so that they might influence us, but so that we might influence them and share the gospel with them. The kind of people we should stay away from are excommunicants, those who've been kicked out of a church because of church discipline, those who claim to be a Christian and are walking in unrepentant sin. You see, you have sheep, Christians, goats, lost people, and then wolves. It's only the wolves that we stay away from. You have brothers, Christians, you have lost people, and then you have what the Bible calls so-called brothers, those that claim to know Christ and are walking in unrighteousness. Those are the ones we stay away from, not lost people. 
We are to love and be around lost people, not for the sake that they would rub off on us, but rather so that we might influence them. So then what does this text mean? If you're to stay away from the wicked, you're to stay away from the sinner, if it doesn't mean stay away from lost people, what does it mean? Here's what it means. To don't, it's not that you stay away from lost people, it means this. Don't do the actions or think the thoughts of lost people. That's what this text is saying. Blessed is the man who does not do what lost people do or have the thought patterns that lost people have. That's the idea. It is a warning to stay against sinful action and to stay against worldly, unbiblical thinking. Let me give you some worldly, unbiblical thinking that you might be tempted to believe that this passage is gonna warn us against. Let me give you some things the world will tell you. Every one of these I'm about to say is a lie, by the way, okay? Having a bunch of money will bring you joy and fulfillment. Pursuing your sexual fantasies will bring you joy and fulfillment. Being really attractive will bring you joy and fulfillment. These are all lies. Having an important job will bring you joy and fulfillment. Doing what you want will bring you joy and fulfillment. Getting drunk or using drugs will bring you joy and fulfillment. Having a great marriage will bring you joy and fulfillment. Having great kids will bring you joy and fulfillment. Having perfect health will bring you joy and fulfillment. Getting rid of anything stressful in life will bring you joy and fulfillment. I'm not done. Living for yourself will bring you joy and fulfillment. Having a lot of influence will bring you joy and fulfillment. Being really smart will bring you joy and fulfillment. Being a good parent will bring you joy and fulfillment. Being prepared for potential disasters will bring you joy and fulfillment. I think COVID has taught us that one's not true. Staying away from people who offend you will bring you joy and fulfillment. That's what the world would say. We're all looking for joy and the world says, here's all the things, where, here's all the ways where you'll find it. And the psalm right out of the gate is gonna say, that's not where it's found. Blessed is the man who doesn't do what lost people do, think like lost people think, but rather meditates on God's word. We'll get to that in just a second. One more clarifier. What is a scoffer? You see where you're not to sit in the seat of scoffers? What is a scoffer? By the way, in Hebrew, that word also means mocker. You can write the word mocker over that in your Bible if you want to, a mocker or a scoffer. What does that mean, not to sit with or be a scoffer? Let me be clear again what it does and doesn't mean because I've heard pastors mispreach this. Being a mocker or a scoffer, biblically, does not mean that you mock or scoff, actually. You know how I know that? Because there's a lot of mocking and scoffing in the Bible. Let me just give you a few examples. God mocks Job. He says, put on your man pants and answer me. Do you hang up the stars? God mocks. Paul says that those who trust in circumcision should go ahead and cut off all their genitalia. Galatians 5, 12, look it up. He considers his former life in Judaism dung, Philippians 3, 8. Paul rebukes Peter publicly, Galatians 2, 14, and even calls out his enemies by name, 2 Timothy 4, 14 and elsewhere. But not just God and Paul, Isaiah mocks. He mocks those who worship idols. He says, let me get this straight. You cut down a tree and then you throw half of it in the fireplace and you carve the other half with your hands and bow down to it, the firewood that you've already thrown the other half into the fire. He mocks, Isaiah mocks constantly. He says that our hypocritical good deeds are as a woman's menstrual cloth, Isaiah 64, 6. Isaiah and Jeremiah make fun of cowardly men by saying they are, quote, like women. They're calling them girly men, okay? There's nothing wrong with being a woman if you're a woman, but it's wrong to be a woman if you are a man, okay? And so he makes fun of them for not being brave. And then the person who mocks and scoffs the most in Scripture is who? Jesus. 
Jesus scoffs and mocks more than anybody else in Scripture. He calls people children of the devil, John 8, 44, a whitewashed tomb, Matthew 23, 27, a serpent, Matthew 23, 33, and he calls a Gentile woman a dog, Matthew 7, 6. He publicly embarrasses someone for not knowing the Bible, Matthew 22, 41 through 46. He compares people to Sodom, Matthew 10, 15. He flips tables and makes a whip in holy anger, John 2, 15. He shuts down stupid questions, Luke 20, 40. And he shows people how unlearned they are in theology, Matthew 22, 29. Not to mention all of Jesus' harsh words about the agony of hell and the hatred he has of his church committing sexual morality and teaching false doctrine. So, a scoffer or a mocker is not someone who scoffs or mocks, interestingly enough. Listen, it's somebody who mocks what's right. To mock what's wrong is righteous. To mock what's stupid is righteous. To mock what's right is evil. To mock God is evil. To mock what is true is evil. You see, mockery is morally neutral. There's righteous mockery and unrighteous mockery. There's righteous scoffing and unrighteous scoffing. What this text is condemning is a scoffer, by the way, just in parallelism is just a word for a sinner, but it's specifically a sinner who's mocking God, who's mocking God's way, who's mocking God's word, who's mocking what's righteous. I'll give you an example. Does Jesus say that we should or should not call people a fool? Should not, there we go. He says that you should not call somebody a fool. And yet Jesus himself in the gospels calls people fools, the same word. You fools, have you not read? Or you fools, etc. How can he say not to call someone a fool and then also call people fools? Same thing I'm saying about scoffing and mocking. To call someone a fool who is a fool is okay. It's okay to call stupid people fools. Fools be fooling, okay? The problem is when you call somebody who's not a fool a fool. The problem is when you're using the term fool just to be mean to somebody and unloving, not when you're actually describing something that's true. Mocking and scoffing, they're morally neutral. It depends on how you use them, okay? There's a lot of things that are morally neutral that you can use in a good or bad way. You can drink to delight your heart or you can get drunk. You can use righteous violence to stop an assailant or you can murder. In the same way, you can use righteous mockery, righteous scoffing, or you can do what this text is actually condemning, which is unrighteous scoffing. Let's see what a scoffer really is then. Proverbs 1, 22. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? Notice a scoffer is someone who hates knowledge. They hate learning, they hate the Bible. Proverbs 13, 1. A wise son hears his father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. There's somebody who when you correct them, they don't repent, they double down and dig in their heels. Proverbs 21, 24, I like this one. Scoffer is the name of the arrogant, haughty man who acts with arrogant pride. In the New Testament, 2 Peter 3, 3 through 4, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Okay? Now, I've spent most of the time in verses one through two because that is the major part of this text. That's the, that's the primary thing. If you want to underline part of this psalm, underline verses one through two. But now let's get into uh, some more here. And then we'll get into verse three. Rather, his delight is in the law of Yahweh, the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Instead of taking his advice from the world, he takes his advice from the Bible and it's that person who's blessed. That's the summary, where we've been so far. Happy, joyful, under God's favor is the man who doesn't do and think like the world thinks, but rather thinks the way God thinks by studying the scriptures, by meditating on God's word. 
And notice, as he's meditating on God's word, he's doing three things. First of all, he's reading scripture. You have to read scripture, okay? You just have to. Zach, where do I start? Just start somewhere in the New Testament and read it, and then when you're done, you can go back and read the Old Testament. There's a sense in which you have to read the Bible backwards because the Old Testament won't make sense until you view it through the lens of Christ. So start somewhere in the New Testament and start reading and then go back and read the Old Testament. And if you say, but Zach, it doesn't make sense, it will make more sense the more you do it. Like anything else, the more you practice, the better you will get at it, okay? So read scripture. Second thing is notice that he's meditating, he delights in it, which doesn't mean he likes everything that he hears. When I read scripture, it is one big slap in the face towards sinful Zach. Every time I read something, I'm like, well, I hate that. I don't do that. I, I it's not that he agrees with all that. It's that he realizes when he and the Bible disagree, the Bible wins. That's what it means to delight in God's word. You realize that God's word is true whether you're doing it or like it or not. And then lastly, notice that this also implies that he's changing his action. There's not this idea in Judaism where you can just study God's word and that's it. You study God's word that it might affect your action, that you might be not just a hearer of the word, but a doer as well. Now let me say one more thing and we'll get into verse three. Joy comes not just as a reward for following God's word, but it actually is something that comes through the process. What does that mean? Let me explain what I mean. The first time I ever tried tasting wine, okay? I didn't like it at first. I'd see all these guys and they would spin it They'd sniff it and then they'd drink it and they would name all these crazy flavors that aren't really there. That tastes like angel food cake and plum and mushroom. And I'm like, I'm not getting any of that. Here's what I'm getting. I'm getting a strong hit of alcohol. Hold on, let me give you some more flavors. A little bit of grape. And then, uh, what's that? Is that Cascade? Do you use Cascade in your, uh, in your dishwasher? That's how I would taste wine. But now after practicing it, I've actually gotten better at it and I actually enjoy it. I can pick up some of the flavors, the real ones, not all the fake ones. I've started to get better at it. In the same way, this text is not just saying, if you'll study God's word, he'll bless you later. It's saying, through the process of even meditating on it, God brings joy, God bling, brings blessing. Or perhaps for another example, when I uh, first started working out, I did not like it, okay? It just hurt a bunch and I didn't know how to do it. One time I took a 45 pound plate weight you know, like you slide on the end of a bar for bench press. And I thought, I'm gonna use this to do bicep curls. But here's what I didn't take into account, math and geometry. That's a big circle. So I just go, wham, and hit myself right in the face. And I start bleeding and I look around to see if anybody saw that. And I thought working out is the best, okay? But now, the more that I do it, the more I actually enjoy it, the more that I enjoy it. Or it's like playing a musical instrument. First musical instrument I ever got, I was a kid in music class in elementary school and I got that recorder, right? We got that recorder and by the end of the week I was just killing it on hot cross buns or jolly old St. Nicholas or something like that. The idea is these things bring joy as you practice them, as you grow in them. Listen, part of that blessedness, part of that joy isn't just a reward God gives you in the end. You actually get that joy and that reward as you're doing it. Just meditating on God's word, thinking about God, thinking about salvation, thinking about atonement, these kind of things, it transforms your life. Let's look at verse three. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Let's look at that first part. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. Here we are given our first analogy in the Psalms, okay? We're gonna have a lot of analogies and so it's really important that you understand how analogies work, okay? Here's what you need to know. 
you have to draw the analogy at the right place or you'll be confused on what the text is saying. When this text says the person that meditates on God's law is like a tree, in what way are they like a tree? Is it that they're rooted? Is it that they're down to earth? Is it, is it that God has planted them? They can't plant themselves, God has to plant them. Is it that they have leaves or what? Where is the analogy being drawn? It's important that you draw the analogy in the right place or it's not gonna make sense. I'll give you a few examples that I think are fun in scripture, okay? These come out of the Song of Solomon. If you've never read the Song of Solomon, what is that? That is Hebrew erotic love poetry that is inspired by God and in your Bible, okay? So, you know, date night ideas. Song of Solomon 7.2 says this. Whereas Solomon is praising the body of his wife, he says this. Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Is that weird to you? Any ladies like, oh my gosh, I wish my husband would say my belly was a heap of wheat. Okay, so here's why we have to draw the analogy. The analogy, the emphasis on that is not on the word heap. That gets you slapped. The analogy is meant to be drawn on the idea of wheat. Why? Because wheat brings life. Wheat is the primary thing that people are eating as they're making bread. He's saying that your body is life-giving. That's what he's saying. But if you misdraw the analogy, it gets real weird, okay? You have to draw the analogy in the right place. Or here's another great one. Song of Solomon 4.2. He's praising her smile. He says, your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing all of which bear twins and not one among them has lost its young. He's saying, you've got all your teeth, okay? Nothing prettier than a girl with all her teeth and all the dentist said, amen. You see, if you go to a church in Arkansas, they just have that text scratched out of their Bible. They just have that. One more. You know how you know the toothbrush was invented in Arkansas? Because if it was invented anywhere else, it would have been called the teeth brush. Let's move on. So it's important when you're given an analogy to draw the analogy at the right place. So when it says that he is like a tree, in what way? In what way? Here's what it means. It's clarified by the very next line. Look at what it says. In all that he does, he prospers. That's the way that he's like a tree. It's not that he's grounded or any of these other things that people say they're all hyper-emotional. The idea is he flourishes. When a tree is planted by water, it has what it needs. It can grow and flourish. It never gets dry. It always has enough water to flourish. What he's saying is the person that, God's word is like that water, that it nourishes us and it grows us and it causes us to walk in joy. That's the hope of that. The idea is that he flourishes. It's like Joshua 1.8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success, okay? The idea primarily is spiritually prosperous, but there's also a sense in which a lot of times when you're following God's word, things just seem to go well. Not always, not health, wealth, prosperity. Seems like the guys that are the most godly end up getting martyred and killed and have terrible lives. But there is a sense in which, to quote uh, Pastor Tommy Nelson, Christians just seem to get lucky. That it just seems like God blesses us as we follow his word. Strange. Strange how that works out. Verse four. Now let's check out the wicked. Let's see the contrast. We've seen the blessed. We've seen the righteous. Verse four. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Three questions here. Who are the wicked? How are they different from the righteous in this psalm? And what the heck is chaff? Okay? Let's answer those three. The wicked person can be one of two kinds of people. It either means the person that's lost, the person that's outside of Israel, that's worshiping pagan gods, or it can be the person that's the Israelite that's not walking according to God's word. 
Wicked there can refer to either one. And in what way are they unlike the righteous? Notice that the righteous is like a tree. He's stable, he's solid, he's nourished continuously, he flourishes, he bears fruit, everything is good. The wicked are blown away. The wicked do not per- or do not prosper. The wicked perish. They might prosper temporarily down here and then go to hell forever, which is not prospering, okay? Which is not prospering. And then what is chaff? I know that's something we don't typically think of as 21st century Americans. What is chaff? Okay, to the best of my ability, I'll describe this to you. I know nothing about farming, by the way. If I go to a farm, I'll act like I do, like I'll put one of those little plants in my mouth, you know, like they do, like a cowboy, and then someone's like, that's poison ivy. And so I'll pull it out. (laughs) But I don't know anything about farming, but here's what they would do in the ancient world. If they were to cut down grain, let's say they were cutting down wheat or some type of grain, they'd cut it down with like a sickle, kind of some type of like sharp knife kind of looking thing. And what you have is you have the grain that you actually eat, and then you have the stalk. You have the stem and the leaves. Maybe a good way to think of it is if you've ever eaten corn on the cob, which, hello, this is America, you've better eaten corn on the cob. So when you eat corn on the cob, you eat the yellow part, you don't eat the husk, you don't eat the stalk, okay? That's kind of like the chaff. So you have the wheat that you eat, and you have what it's attached to that you can't eat. And so what they do is after they have the wheat, they put it down on a big thing called a threshing floor, and they take animals and tools, and they smash it all up, okay? They smash it all up, and what that does is it separates the part you can eat from the part you can't eat. Well, then how do you get the grain? You don't get down on all fours and pick up little pieces of grain. What you do is you wait for a windy day, and you take a big fork, like a big pitchfork, and you stick it under all of that mess, and you throw it up in the air. And the grain, because it's heavy, falls back down, so you have a big pile of food, and the chaff is the part that's blown away. This text is saying that is what it is like for the wicked. Unlike the righteous who prosper, who are rooted, who are nourished, who are in relationship with God, the wicked are cast away. Verses five through six. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is very similar to Matthew 7, 13 through 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many. Notice that the Bible just said more people will be damned than saved. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard. It's hard being a Christian that leads to life and those who find it are few. A few comments on verses five through six, and then I wanna explain what it means. First of all, when it says that God is, uh, that God knows, it doesn't mean like is aware of. God knows everything. The idea there is when it says God knows, the idea is that he guards the way of the righteous. He approves of the way of the righteous. Additionally, when it says sinners, what does that mean, okay? What does it mean when it here says sinners? Let me explain. A Christian, is a Christian a sinner? Yes or no? Yes and no, it depends on what you mean, okay? In the Reformation, they had a famous Latin phrase, simul justus et peccator, that the Christian is simultaneously justified and a sinner. So on the one hand, we're not sinners. On the one hand, we're saints. God sees us as perfect in Christ, okay? Saints aren't just these holy people in Roman Catholicism. You're a saint if you're a Christian. But on the other hand, we're sinners in the sense that we still are hopelessly devoted to sin and will be so until we die and will be so until we die. But that's not what this text is talking about. We are saints who sin. This text is talking about sinners who sin. We're right, we're saved people who sin. This text is talking about lost people. Another way to translate this, if you wanna write a note in your Bible, is to say non-believers. It's the non-believers who will face the judgment in this negative sense. That's the idea. 
But let me explain what this text is talking about and then we'll wrap up with the gospel. Verses five through six are simply saying that one will flourish and one will be condemned. One will be destroyed, one will be judged, okay? Now, what type of judgment is it? On the one hand, you might say, well, this is just talking about temporary judgment. The Jews in the Old Testament didn't have a fully formed view of eschatology and eternal life and all that kind of stuff. You don't get that until the New Testament. God reveals himself progressively and then is done revealing himself as scripture is written, but the New Testament sheds light on what happens to us after we die, but they don't have that same conception as much in the Old Testament. There's just kind of this shadowy idea of going to Sheol, the grave, and the righteous are there and they're in a good part of it and the wicked are in a bad part of it, but it doesn't give you a whole lot of details, okay? The other way to read this, and I think this is probably the more Christian way, reading it in light of the entire Bible says this isn't just talking about temporary judgment, it's also talking about eternal judgment. So let me push this as hard as I can. You and I are going to stand before God in judgment. We are going to be judged. Whether Christ comes back or whether or not we die, this is what's going to happen. Listen, you are going to die. It's going to happen. As William Wallace says from Braveheart, either today or many years from now in your bed, but it's gonna happen. You don't get to avoid that. You will die. Don't avoid that thought. Lean into it. You will die and you will stand before God in judgment. There's a phrase that I like that's used a lot in the Middle Ages. You know what the phrase is in Latin? It's memento mori. Do you know what memento mori means in Latin? It means remember death. More specifically, remember that you must die. It's used, these images of skulls and stuff are used in art in the Middle Ages. It was a Christian symbol. You ever seen a painting and on the guy's desk is like a skull? That's a memento mori. Or if you've ever seen a painting where there's a, a skull on somebody's bookshelf, that's a memento mori. Uh, guys in New England used to wear rings with skulls on them. It's a memento mori. I am human. I am going to die. From dust I was taken to dust I shall return. Even the Puritans who didn't like pictures and art would still put skulls with wings on them on their tombstones. It was a memento mori. Remember that you must die. I have a coronavirus face mask that has memento mori printed on it. It has a skull because on the one hand, I do want to keep people safe when I'm out at Kroger or whatever it is. But on the other hand, I want to say this, you are still going to die. Your hope cannot be in avoiding death. Your hope must be in Christ. This text is saying that there will be a judgment and you will either be raised unto life, the righteous, or you will be condemned forever. Okay? Now listen, how do we go from not being how do we go from being in this condemned category to being in the saved category? Please hear what I'm about to say. There's a way that you can read this psalm where you're the good guy. I'm a Christian. I meditate on God's law day and night. He causes my way to flourish. But there's another way that you can read this psalm where you and I are not the good guys. We have not obeyed all of God's commands. God doesn't demand that we be good. He demands that we be perfect, and none of us have been. We do not meditate on God's law day and night. We oftentimes walk with the wicked, meaning do the things that they do and think the things that they think. This is a text that condemns us. This is a text that condemns us. So here is your only hope. Your only hope is that there is one who has kept Psalm 1, that there is one who has not given in to the wicked, that there is one who did meditate on God's law day and night enough to confound the top Bible scholars of his day, that there is one who was, that did flourish, 
that there is one who was already judged for our sins and is raised up, has been vindicated, that God is a, 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 approves of his way. And that's Christ. There will be a judgment, you're going to die. Your hope can't be in not dying. That's gonna happen. Your hope has to be in that after you die, God will raise you unto righteousness. And that only happens, he raises you unto eternal life. That only happens based on whether or not you trust Christ. That's it. So Zach, I, I don't wanna go to hell when I die. I wanna, I, wanna, I wanna have eternal life. Here's how you have it, ready? Stop doing, stop trying. Stop trying to be good people. Stop trying to be better and trust in Christ. That is the only way that you are saved. God doesn't demand that you be good. He demands that you be perfect and you can't be. Your only hope is to trust the God man. Your only hope is to put your faith in someone who was perfect, who kept all of God's law, who meditated on it day and night, who died for your sins and who was raised and is one day coming again. That is your only hope. Do you know Jesus? That's it. That's the only thing that matters. The difference between whether or not you are going to hell and you're lost or you're not going to hell and you are saved is simply on whether or not you have bowed the knee to King Jesus. That's it. Not the bad past things you've done. We've all done bad things. Not the good things you've done. You need to repent of trusting in your good deeds for righteousness. It is on Christ and on Christ alone that you must trust for salvation. That's the first and most important thing you're gonna need to know as we work through the Psalms. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for today. We thank you for this text. We ask that you would make us these people. We, we do want to engage the lost, but you'd, we ask that we, would, uh, that we wouldn't stay away from sin by staying away from sinners, but rather stay away from sin by staying close to Jesus. And we ask that you would make us people that meditate on your word day and night, not just because we're supposed to, it's like a good churchy thing to do, but rather as we've seen in this text that it brings blessing it brings joy. It brings what our hearts most want. I pray that you would bless this series. I pray that you would bless us during this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you now as we transition into communion. We ask that you would bless that, that that would be an encouragement to our hearts. We ask it all in Christ's name, amen.